you not know, my wife Julie and myself. We've been here about four and a half years, uh, moved here after living in Utah for 16 years where I was working after retiring from the Air Force. And uh, we have five adult children scattered across the country. We used to be able to say coast to coast, but the ones in Washington State just moved to New York State because they wanted to see some snow, I guess, So because they are in Buffalo. But um, we have 11 grandchildren scattered across, again, the central and eastern time zones, and we're grateful whenever we have the opportunity to see them. Sometimes the kids get to come here, and you may see them with us at church on occasion. But because the closest ones are in San Antonio, that doesn't happen that often. But we do uh, want you to know how deeply we appreciate you. The blessedness that we have received as a result of being in this body of believers with the teaching we receive from our shepherds. And today is Pastor Appreciation Day for this entire month. So both of our pastors are gone. Um, Yeah, but we want to appreciate them. So I do encourage you to do so whenever you have the opportunity uh, throughout the year, but particularly in this this month. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, God, awesome Savior, we are grateful to have the opportunity to be here. We're grateful that um, those who have read your word, those that have led us in music, have brought us in worship to you. And whereas we may have started the day on a different foot, when we've come here to be in the house of God with you and with our fellow believers, we pray that our hearts would be tuned to you, that we would be one body that we would listen for your spirit whispering to us, guiding us, not just now, but throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the years, until you return, that we could see you face to face. And Father, we just ask that during this time that I might be able to present your word clearly, that it would speak, you would speak, not me, but you would speak to the hearts of those that are here and those that are online listening as well. And it's in your gracious and holy name we pray. Amen. On 21 February of 1848, two men published a pamphlet in German which attempted to explain what was wrong with the world and what needed to be done to put it right. They saw history as a constant interplay between those who ruled over and exploited those that actually do all the work. It was a hopeless world for those that had no power. And they saw the only answer was to put everyone on the same level. No more ruling class, no more working class. Conflict and exploitation would thus come to an end, and everyone would be treated fairly. A utopian society would exist, and everyone would be happy. This document we call the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And its rallying cry of workers of the world unite would change the lives of millions of people, with that change coming many times in the forms of death, violence, poverty, and the loss of freedoms, which we 
hold dear. Now, why wasn't this vision realized in any of the various locations where these ideas were attempted? Was it just too radical or was it just wrong? Perhaps it's simplest to say that it missed a crucial point in ignoring the sage words of Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't put people right by changing their circumstances because our problems really come from within. Consider with me some aspects, some statements in Scripture. Isaiah 59, verses 12 through 13. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Jeremiah 22:17 But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and exploitation. And then in the New Testament in Matthew 15:18 where Jesus says, "But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man." Now the heart means the center of a man's being and personality. It is the fountain out of which everything else comes. It's the source of every activity, and it includes the mind, the will, and the heart. It's the total man. And it does not merely mean it's the seat of affections or emotions. So can we have an undivided heart? One which regards God as our highest good and is concerned only about loving God? The manifesto didn't address that. Pure in heart is all about keeping the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And the only way to realize a pure heart is to recognize you have an impure heart. You mourn over this and do the only thing which can lead to cleansing and purity. You turn to Christ. Because it's only God that changes hearts. No amount of laws or rules or good intentions can deal with what is inside of us. But God has a plan. And he has put his plan into place. And it is happening all around us each moment as he patiently waits until his determination that the culmination of that plan will occur. And it is certain he will change these sinful hearts. They will no longer be divided between sin and righteousness, but will be united in wholehearted commitment to him. Consider these promises. Again in Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-nine, And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 1 Peter 3, 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Well, Jesus carefully articulated what this new kingdom was all about. And he published his own manifesto. 
We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's radical. It's a clear explanation of God's new community, what it looks like, and how its citizens live and interact. And it does address what these other manifestos ignore. It addresses the reality of the character of those in the kingdom. It addresses the heart. Now, I think it's safe to say that what we have recorded in Matthew as a Sermon on the Mount and what is recorded in Luke as what we call the Sermon on the Plain are probably two separate events in Christ's three years of earthly ministry. They have a lot of similarities and there are some differences. The account in Matthew appears to be earlier on in Christ's ministry and Luke much later. But I want you to think for a moment, Jesus was always teaching about the reality of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as it's also said, and how it had arrived. John tells us in John twenty-one twenty-five that there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it would appear to me and hopefully to you, that we have a small account, although fully sufficient in all ways, of what Jesus had to say. And it was determined by the Spirit of God to the writers. It leads me to believe also that the core fundamentals of the kingdom, this manifesto, was often taught. It wasn't just on two occasions. I'm sure over the three years he had to reiterate this many times, particularly to his disciples because we know they needed repetition. But he was doing it over and over again, and that made it easily remembered. One of our biggest mistakes on coming to the Sermon on the Mount is to think that this will make you a Christian. If you can make your life look like what Jesus describes here, particularly in the beginning verses, if you can try your best to obey those teachings, that will make you a Christian. It has been seen that way in many circles. Those that think of Christ as a great teacher probably even know and can quote these verses. But it isn't like that. It isn't a do this and you'll be a Christian. It's because you are a Christian, be like this. This is talking, this whole sermon is talking to those already in the kingdom. This is talking to his disciples. This is their manifesto. This, The way to become a Christian is not to meet Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. It's to meet him first at the cross. Dying for your sins. Dying to give you new life. Dying to create a new person with a new heart, a new direction, and a new ambition. Become part of the kingdom. Then... Come to the mountain and see what living in the kingdom is all about. This is how Christians ought to live. This is how Christians are meant to live. But what do we mean by kingdom? Now, it is a kingdom, in one sense, that hasn't been established on earth yet. It's a kingdom in that way, which is to come. But it is a kingdom that's already come. The kingdom of God is among you and within you, was said often. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian and in the church. It literally means the reign or rule of God, the reign of Christ. So I ask you, is Christ not on the throne? 
Is he not already given all authority and all power? Is he already not holding all things together? The kingdom has come. But the kingdom's coming. And the kingdom is yet to come. Christ is ruling his kingdom right now in the hearts of all citizens of the kingdom. And these words of this sermon have everything to do with each of us right now, not just some words that were meant only for a few disciples on a hillside thousands of years ago. It is the perfect picture of the life of the kingdom of God. So today we're going to look at a portion of the sermon. I'm mindful of the time. I'm hoping to not exceed it. I do have a hard stop because I'm attending Entrusted at 2 p.m. So um, so today we're going to look at a portion of the sermon, but we need to be careful that we don't just jump into some verses without an understanding of the foundation of these instructions. So we have to look at the beginning and consider how the Beatitudes undergird each of the case studies which Jesus brings forward. Now, if we fail to do that, we run the danger of looking at verses and applying them as some sort of checklist, Okay in either a kind of salvation-type role or a particular actions necessary to, whether, to say whether we are a Christian or not a Christian or what's this fruit or whatever. We, we like checklists. We really do. You know, they let us gauge where we're at in a project. You know, I'm on step six of this 12-step program or we've completed all the prerequisites for this class we're going to be taking. We've met our fitness goal for three days of the five days of this week. You know, we, we like checklists and we gravitate toward that. And when we're looking what Jesus says, we don't want to look at it as a checklist. Eric Zeller, one of our missionaries, spoke here about being ambassadors of joy in 2021. And his excellent teaching looked primarily at the importance of the first word in each of the Beatitudes, blessed or blessed. And that can be translated as happy. And he's talked at length about that. Now, I do think some of your translations may say happy in there when you're reading it. Um, But I think our American view of that word misses the fullness of the Greek word behind that. And I'll talk more about that later. In fact, a couple months after Eric talked, Terry also examined these same verses, and he was leading us through an understanding of our king leading up to Christmas. And so this king being different because he gives blessings instead of needing to be blessed. So we had that. But we're not going to spend the necessary several months of sermons going through these statements. Terry told me that about 25 years ago, he went through the Sermon on the Mount. It took 40 sermons. That should be no surprise. He spent six sermons on the Lord's Prayer. The first of those six sermons was on the words, Our Father. Well, we're not going to do that today, okay? But we do have to spend a few moments contemplating how these Beatitudes work in our understanding of the kingdom. Because both the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used. They mean the same thing. It's just that the Jewish sensitivity to saying God often it caused Matthew to write kingdom of heaven. They really do mean the same thing. So we're going to talk about this bedrock of righteousness. I had a seminary professor that once said we should think of right relationship, okay, in the context of relationship with God, whenever we read the word righteousness. So if you see the righteousness word, you know, your righteousness is like filthy rags, for instance. He would be saying, your relationship with God on your own is like filthy rags. You got nothing, 
Okay, And that's what we're seeing in the Beatitudes today. So I want you to, it's generally helpful to think about that whenever you see that term righteousness, to be, look at the relational aspect, because that's what Jesus is doing throughout the entire sermon. Now, first and foremost, righteousness is an attribute of God. Psalms 11:7, for the Lord is righteous. Righteousness is a statement about God's moral nature, and it means he never does wrong. God's righteousness means he cannot do wrong. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now, for us, righteousness is a measure of morality, just like it is for God. But we don't have a part in defining what is right. We're righteous only as much as our morality, expressed in desires, thoughts, and deeds, conforms to that of God's. Thus, we have no righteousness. Because wherever we differ with God, we're unrighteous. Because Adam's sin corrupted us all. There's none righteous. No, not one, Paul tells us. Only Christ lived that perfectly righteous life and died for our sins in order to free us from our punishment and credit us with his own righteousness. And God always acts righteously. His every action is consistent with his character. He's consistently godly. God is not defined by the term righteous as much as the term righteous is defined by God. Really? God is not measured by the standard of righteousness. He sets the standard of righteousness. And at the very outset of his earthly ministry, Jesus set out to contrast his interpretation of the Old Testament teaching on righteousness with that of the scribes and Pharisees. In reality, he didn't offer a new interpretation. He sought to reestablish the proper understanding of righteousness as taught by the law and the prophets. And thus, he repeatedly used the formula, you have heard it said. This is what the scribes and Pharisees teach, is what he's talking about there. But I say to you, but this is how the Old Testament was meant to be understood. The scribes and Pharisees thought of themselves as setting the standard for righteousness. They felt that they, of all men, were righteous. And Jesus shocked them all when in Matthew 5.20 he said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's clear that if the scribes and Pharisees cannot produce enough righteousness on their own, nobody could. The standard of righteousness the law held forth was even higher than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So no one is righteous enough to get into heaven. What a shock to the self-righteous who thought they had box office seats in the kingdom. Now, in some ways, I'm just going to throw this in here. The Pharisees get a little bit of a bum rap because of how often Jesus, very correctly, called them on the carpet for their attitudes and actions. His words about them are always accurate, and they didn't skirt around hard topics. He called curses down onto them. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. And he said they had no part of the kingdom. But their historical beginnings and intentions were basically good. During the time of the Maccabees and the revolution, two groups formed two different answers to try and ensure how to best retain the Jewish religion and the temple, and in that way, the people. The priestly class became known as the Sadducees. They were much more politically responsive to the demands of conquering peoples, thus ensuring that 
future political rebellions wouldn't occur because if those happened, they would result in destruction. They regarded only the first five books of Scripture as being authoritative, and they had charge of all the maintenance of the temple and the sacrificial system. The Pharisees, on the other hand, saw things differently. They felt the best way to ensure the continuation of the Jewish religion and people and nation was in the scrupulous keeping of the law. And their very name means separatist, to be separate. They're masters of the details of the law. And that included both the prophets and oral tradition. And they were seen by the people as the most holy, upright men in the land. The Sadducees were the aristocratic monarchists. The Pharisees were the eclectic, popular, democratic people, that the blue-collar people, if you will, that they liked. And they really felt that if the entire nation would join them in this seeking of righteousness and performing righteousness, that the Messiah would come in accordance with what the prophets said. But there were real substantive issues, and John the Baptist points it out very well for us in Matthew 3, 7, when he says, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. So this manifesto has a sharp edge that we need to recognize. Martin Lloyd-Jones reflects on the reality of Christ's picture of kingdom righteousness when he says, nothing shows me the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit and his work within so much as the Sermon on the Mount. These Beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. So let's, let's look at the Beatitudes for a minute. So if you've got your scriptures open to chapter 5, you'll see these in those first few verses that uh, Brian read for us this morning. Blessed is beatus in Latin, which we get the term beatitude from, and makarios is the Greek word behind that. Blessed, fortunate, sometimes happy. My problem with the word happy being used there is that we typically equate feelings with that, okay? You might feel happy this morning, or maybe not, and maybe that'll change later in the day. That's not happy in terms of what this term is all about. Jesus wants us to understand that blessed means we are in a good position. We are in the place where he has put us. We are in the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're well off. We should be seen by others as being in a better position than them. That's that salt and light aspect in the sermon. When others see us, they want to be a part of the kingdom. That's that blessedness. Now, it should make you feel happy being blessed, but that's not the point. We are specially positioned by God as his children, as citizens of his kingdom, and that will never change. Now, these verses describe the character of the kingdom, as I mentioned earlier, and tell us what a Christian is. We're not talking a territory that's ruled by some monarch like the United Kingdom. You can't draw God's kingdom on a map. It's drawn on the hearts of the people. Now, if you think about it for a moment, in the garden, the kingdom was present. God walked with Adam and Eve on the earth in the kingdom. But this thing called sin came in and kind of put that aside. And instead, this uh, imposter was placed in charge, if you will, of the earthly kingdom 
But really, in reality, our adversary, Satan, is nothing more than a puff of smoke under God's rule. He has no real power. But God withdrew his visible earthly kingdom and our ability to see that kingdom, which was then only seen through the various prophets in different visions. And all of a sudden, John comes on the scene and he says, repent, what? The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is hand. And Jesus came, and he started saying the same thing. And in fact, when he said the kingdom is near, that terminology meant it's standing right in front of you. It's with you. It's not just coming. It's here. And they rejected it. But the cross, the resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit of God built a new unseen kingdom. And it's growing within the hearts of people like the parables of the seeds growing and the crops being harvested. It's here. You are in the kingdom or you're not. There's no other choice. You are either in the kingdom or you're not. And there will come a day when that kingdom blossoms into full view as Christ returns and he establishes his throne on earth. But this manifesto is not talking about that day. It's talking about right now. And it's talking to those that are in the kingdom. Now, one of the points here is that the Beatitudes, you cannot look at the Beatitudes as a buffet that you get to pick and choose. It's a full meal, okay? Uh, it's not Golden Corral, okay? This is a full meal, a multi-course feast, and we need to remember that. And Spurgeon mentioned these. He talked about it being a ladder of light, and he said that This ladder, each step is of the purest sunshine, and each step is above the other, and each step springs out of the other. Now, think about trying to climb a ladder and skipping rungs, or rungs aren't there, how difficult that is. You've got to climb the ladder, each rung. The Beatitudes are rungs in that ladder. They build from them. So that means the first one's really, really important. Okay, And this whole thing is a... It's a demand. It's not a job list. It's not like a punch list when you build a house or something to get everything done. This is a demand, the whole thing. And this will change the world. The Communist Manifesto could not change the world because it could not change hearts. Christ changes hearts. And his manifesto in these Beatitudes and the following sermon changes the world. So we're not going to consider each of the Beatitudes. Here they are. But we need to carry some brief descriptions forward in our minds as we consider the remainder of the sermon and how each of the case studies, if you want to call them that, used by Christ have their foundation in these statements. So blessed are the poor in spirit in verse 3. I want you to notice people are no hope. They've got no hope. They're poor in spirit. This has nothing to do with wealth. This isn't money. This is talking about the reality of I've got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, but solely to thy cross I cling. I don't know why that hymn just kept coming to me all week as I was thinking about this. But the bottom line to us, I got nothing. I've got no hope. And what does it say about the kingdom? You're in it now. It's not a future thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. This isn't the uh, 
the the mourning type of thing, like a grief at a funeral or something, a loss of any kind. This is that the thought of sin in your own heart and the sin in others that you know that will lead them to judgment and the sin that you can't seem to eliminate in your life that you weep over that. Don mentioned when Jesus wept over Jerusalem. They were rejecting him. Their sin. They did not want to repent. And he wept over that. He mourned over that. Do we mourn over sin? That's what it's talking about. The meek or the gentle. We're not proud or arrogant. Because we know everything we have is from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after after righteousness. After that relationship. Their passion is to be like Jesus and to be with him. Blessed are the merciful. They are merciful because God has shown them mercy. Later on as we were reading in here, and it was talking about forgiveness. People who forgive, they forgive because they have been forgiven. That's what it's talking about. If you haven't been forgiven, you can't forgive. It isn't a, well, I didn't forgive, so God won't forgive me. No, you forgive because God forgives you first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Blessed are the pure in heart. We have a desire to be innocent and clean. Blessed are the peacemakers. We go out of our way to create peace. Think of how Jesus went out of his way to create peace. Leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a life filled with all of the different issues that each of us face every day, as it says in Hebrews, that he faced every temptation that's common to man. And he did that, going to the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, to bring about peace, the restoration of relationship. What are we doing in terms of peacemaking? That's what it's talking about. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You're willing to face trouble and pain because of your relationship with Christ. We're living in the kingdom right now. We're blessed right now. Because God has put us in the best position possible. We live each of these beatitudes every day. And we will never move from them. You're never going to get past these as, well, I don't need to worry about being poor in spirit anymore. We're always going to be poor in spirit until that day when we're face to face with Christ. We're dependent on our King. Eternal life begins not when you die but when you find Christ, when Christ first finds you. So this next section after the Beatitudes, just going to really skip through this really quick and everything because I want to get to what I'm actually going to talk about. Um, Righteousness and others. This whole next section is talking about how do you as a Christian live your life in relationship to those around you, okay? It's... uh, it's regarding a little bit of what's your attitude about the law, because the law was about relationship too. It talks about holiness. The holiness they felt was centered in the daily practice of honoring and keeping the law. That's what Christ did. Daily, he kept the law. The Pharisees were all about keeping the law, but they lacked 
righteousness and holiness because of why they were doing it. And that's what Jesus talks about in the section we're going to go further into. The people will look at the scribes and Pharisees and see them as great paragons of virtue. And what ended up, that culminated in a feeling of, well, I'm just the average Joe. I can't do that. I'm not as good as that Pharisee. In Matthew 5.20, is so shocking when he says, you got to be better than them. The practice of your relationship with God, your relationship with God, that righteousness, has to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. It's not what they're doing. They're not in relationship. If you're not in relationship with God, you're not going to be in the kingdom. That's all he's saying. Now, that's a superficial righteousness of the Pharisees. But this life-changing acknowledgement of Jesus as the one in whom God is at work, that's going to involve things that flow out of that, like the obedient doing of God's will. It's the redemptive gift of God establishing these new relationships. When we look at the law in the Old Testament, the Pharisees listed them out, all 613 of them, okay? Everything they had. We typically only think of the ten, the ten words, the Decalogue and uh, Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. And we think of those... And I want you to think about them this morning in terms of relationship. The first four, they talk about a relationship with God. They're a vertical thing. You will have no other gods before me. It's a vertical relationship. The last six are all about our relationship with each other. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't murder. Each of those. Their relationships with each other. And then when Jesus is asked, well, what's the greatest one? What did he say? Vertical relationship, horizontal relationship. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And the second is like to the first. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Now, throughout this section... Jesus, in particular, uses that phrase I mentioned earlier. You've heard it said, but I say to you, you might need to understand a little bit the impact of those words. Most of the people could not read Hebrew, okay? And uh, because they couldn't read Hebrew, when they were given a copy of the Scriptures that they were required, every man was required to have a copy of the Scriptures, okay, of the first five books of Pentateuch that were required to have that in their home. It was in Hebrew. The scribes are the ones who would copy it for them, and they would pay for that. So the scribes would do that, and all of a sudden, think about it this way, okay? David Gibson's doing the Finney translation. We're about to get that published and everything. If I handed you the Finney translation of the New Testament, and that was all you had, how would you do with that? Probably wouldn't understand much of what was in there. Right? You need, and that's the reason for the translation for the Finney people, that they will have it in their own language. So here the Jews had copies of the scripture in Hebrew and they couldn't understand it. So how did they learn about it? They went to the synagogue and guess what? The Pharisees would explain it to them. You have heard it said. That's what that's talking about. And Jesus comes in and says, they're teaching you wrong. 
Here's the right way to think about it. Here's the original way. Here's the way God intends it. I say to you. Well, this whole section is a lot of sermons. You know, uh, so we're not going to worry too much about that. As I mentioned, Terry did quite a bit on that. You can always go back and listen to those maybe if they're there. Uh, But we're going to talk more about the next section. And this is the righteousness aspect of dealing with God. So chapter 6. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the entirety of chapter 6. And he said, I sometimes think this is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire Scripture. It probes and it examines and it holds a mirror up before us and it does not allow us to escape. There is no other chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself. Now this practice your righteousness in verse 1, that's clearly something we're doing, right? And what we do is an expression of who we are. That's that heart aspect. It's referring to the way the state of our heart is expressed in these specific examples. And we have three examples of religious devotion that are in this section of the sermon. And we need to be careful on our motivation. It's easy to do right things for the wrong reasons. And in God's eyes, if we do that, those become wrong things and are not acts of righteousness. So when it starts out, it says, take care, be on your guard, beware. It's indicating a constant vigilance. You're doing these acts of piety before others to show results, and you don't receive a reward from your Father in heaven. Be constantly vigilant that you're not doing it from that kind of motivation. That's where we're going here. It isn't public worship. It's worship for publicity. Okay? So as he goes on in here, he starts talking about a group of people, the hypocrites. Hypocrites comes from a Greek word, hypocrites, and that means an actor in a play. The essence of what they are ha- is happening in that is that the actor is telling a story that has no relationship to what they're really like. I've acted in a number of plays, and the goal is always to uh, do the same thing, to make my character, the one I am playing, no matter how different it may be than I myself are or am, to make it as real as possible to the audience. Well, in a play, that's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. But in real life, that's a deception. It's a lie. And telling a false story to the outside world is unconnected with the state of their hearts. Now, these men that Jesus is talking about, and I think this is directed a lot at the Pharisees here. Again, he's talking to the disciples. These men were unconscious hypocrites. They thought they were doing the right things, okay? And that all was well. They were doing the right things. They were good Pharisees. Paul even talks about, of all Pharisees, I was chief, right? Did the right things. But their religion was all external. It was not internal to the heart. And the kingdom of God is concerned about the heart. It's not my external actions, but what I am inside that is important. 
We might even say that the ultimate goal of the Pharisee was not to glorify God, but to glorify himself. And he was looking at his own achievements rather than on his relationship with God. The danger and reality of being a hypocrite, and let me, let me pause there for just a second. So that term, that Greek term meaning actor, that doesn't carry with it any, any sense of negative, okay? You're an actor. But when we hear the term hypocrite today, largely because of what's being said in these verses, you don't want to be a hypocrite, right? You don't want to be somebody that somebody looks at and says, well, you're just false, so we, we've put this negative connotation to the term, and it comes from right here. And Spurgeon recognized this when he says, very bitter is the enmity of the world against the people of Christ. Men will forgive a thousand faults in others, but they will magnify the most trivial offense in the followers of Jesus and shout triumphantly, aha, we have it. See how these Christians act? They're hypocrites to a man. And this will do much damage to the cause of Christ and much insult offered to his name. Abraham Lincoln, I think, actually gave one of the best definitions. He described a hypocrite as a man who murdered both of his parents and then pleaded for mercy on the grounds he was an orphan. The true measure of our spiritual life is what we are like in private, not where others can see us, not in church, not here, not with scores or hundreds of others looking on, but at home on our own where the only audience is God our Father. And these verses talk to that over and over again. So Matthew is turning now and listing what Jesus is talking about in terms of three acts of piety characteristic to Judaism, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now 5.20 set the discussion for righteousness exceeding the scribes and Pharisees, and Matthew 6.1 sets the stage for conduct that befits the proper relationship with God by demanding a righteousness that is performed in contrast to the manner of hypocrites. And we're gonna, we see the same formula in all three of these as Andrew read for us. It talks about when you do this, when you pray, when you give alms, when you fast, okay? Don't do as the hypocrites, okay? And their reward is given in full right then, okay? Instead, do it this way, in secret, with your father. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The concept of merit and reward was critical within the Jewish religion. And it's deep within this passage. And you have three basic premises to consider how the Jews might think about this. Number one... Your reward corresponds to your behavior in terms of the law. If I do everything right in terms of the law, then I'm going to be rewarded for it. Okay? And there's a final accounting of that that occurs at the last judgment. That's number two. And then three, because that standard is known and everybody knows what the law says, people will recognize what I'm doing in accordance with the law and they will reward me and God will do the same thing just like them because that's the standard. So that's the way they were thinking, reward and merit. And Jesus turns that on its head, and he says, no, in the kingdom, your actual reward it far exceeds your efforts. Consider, if you will, the parable of the vineyard workers who get paid the same amount for working totally different amounts of time, right? Your reward far exceeds your efforts. 
And number two, God acts on his own gracious goodness, not on merit. He rewards because he chooses to, not because you did something, okay? And the loss of that basis of measurement means you don't get to calculate your standing before God. You don't get to sit there and say, oh, well, I did these five things. Therefore, God's going to be real happy with me. Therefore, I'm going to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because I did these five things. That's not the way it works. Not the way it works at all. Instead, God's goodness causes his reward to come to us. Now, in each of these, it also has a win when you do these things. That's a whenever. It's a certainty. Jesus is saying, you will pray. You will fast. You will give alms. You will, those are acts of mercy. You will do these things. That's, that's not an if. He's saying you will do these things. So almsgiving, says one through four. So when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they will be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Okay? You hearing that formula? Okay? They had even, the Jews had even made it where almsgiving was kind of the chief thing of demonstrating your righteousness. They actually had taken the concept of righteousness and almsgiving as being synonymous. And that's why you'll see almsgiving and acts of righteousness both sometimes in your translation. It's charitable deeds. It's mercy, kindness, giving to the poor. Now, he's saying don't do it in a way that it's all about publicity. Okay? It's not for the purpose of attracting attention. The the Greek behind the words to be seen is where we actually get the word theater. Don't be like a theater. So we have the contrast between this trumpets blowing and the, so I went to this church one time, took my, two of my oldest girls there, and this was in Nebraska, a little different service than we have. First of all, everybody, I was the only person this light in the service, but uh, it came time to give their offering. Now, we allow you to put your offering, your tithes in a box back here where nobody really sees or whatever type of thing. In this case, they started playing music and row by row, people would get up and they would dance their way to the front, waving their checks or cash to put into the plate and then dance their way back. It's my row. I'm not a good dancer, but you know. So there was this publicity of what you were doing. That's kind of what it's talking about here, okay? Uh, If the Pharisees were involved in that, the only thing they would want to change is make sure that they know how much I'm giving as a part of that, okay? So this almsgiving aspect, when he's sitting there and saying, don't give in this way of trumpets blowing and all this type of thing, this fanfare, but instead give in the way of a biological impossibility that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. There's no room for self-congratulation in your giving. You don't, the focus is on the deed, not on yourself. It's on the deed as a response to someone's need, not as an attempt to meet your own need for recognition. And when he says the applause their reward, it's the applause. An actor 
here's the applause at the end of the play, right? And hopefully there's going to be a standing ovation too. They get all this, right? And the Jewish mindset would say that applause by the people would be an indicator of how God would reward me for that as well. But Jesus makes a statement. He says, their reward has been paid in full. It's over. It's done. They've been paid up. Your father will reward you. What is this reward? What is God's reward that he's talking about in all three of these examples? I don't think it's something that's only going to be revealed when we come face to face with the God. It isn't some extra jewels on our crown of righteousness or some special ruling position. It's exactly what Jesus describes at the beginning of this sermon. It is a true right relationship with God. Our reward is him. Our reward is God. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who are poor in spirit. Our reward is him. Can there be any greater reward? Can you imagine any reward greater than a relationship with God? I can't. Now those outside the kingdom, their reward isn't that. They don't have that relationship. But those in the kingdom have a changed heart. They have a position of relationship, an eternal inheritance that can never be exceeded because this is God's righteousness. This is God's relationship. And Jesus then turns to prayer. This is his next piece on this. And there's a lot of false ideas about prayer. Some would think it's some mystical force for good or the benefit of prayer is proportional to the quantity of prayer. You know, the longer the prayer, the better it is. It gains you merit, especially if you say the right words at the right times. And Jesus says, nope, that's not what it is. It is not to impress other people. Okay? And he sits there and he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so they will be seen by people. And truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. It's not to impress other people. Now, praying in public is necessary. We've done it already here today. We do it often. But it's not to impress other people. If you're praying long, flowery prayers with clever and polished language in a very reverential tone of voice, people might applaud you on that and everything, but that's it. We can't impress God. The word that's translated here as babbling seems to refer to a mindless, repetitive talking for the sake of talking. Now, the Gentiles would pray, and they had a lot of different gods. So as they're praying, uh, they needed to repeat themselves, maybe use certain little formula in order to attract the attention of the correct God for that prayer, okay? And there was anxiety. They didn't know whether they were being heard, so they, they kept talking and talking and talking. It's kind of like when Keith was talking this morning about Elijah and the prophets of Baal and everything, and when Elijah sat in there and saying, Maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe you should talk louder. Okay? That's the kind of thing that he's talking about here with these Gentiles and everything. That they are praying mindlessly. The more words they can string together, the better it will be and the more impressed God will be. And Jesus says, not misses the point. Real praying is not about the form of the prayer, the exact words you use, or the number of times you say those words. God is only interested in the state of your heart. 
When we look at the Lord's Prayer, or some people will refer to it as the Disciples' Prayer, when you look at that, you see the word Father used twice in verse 6 and once in verse 8. You go into your inner room, he says, that dark place where you're not to be disturbed, where it's only you and God, and you pray. And there's no applause for that. It's your relationship with God is that reward. And prayer is simple. It's a child going to their father and talking. The relationship is not about some sort of show for others. It's about being real with God one-on-one. Imagine this, a child addressing his or her father with the flowery language you typically may hear in some reverential prayers. So here's the child asking for a bedtime story. Dear Father, whereas it has been found pleasing unto you in sundry preceding days to read unto me from the volume whereof the title is Best Loved Bedtime Stories, even so as the shades of evening do descend upon the earth, do I herewith humbly beseech thee to extend the like favor unto me this eventide. What? You want a bedtime story? Okay. Prayer is confident. God knows. It's not like the Gentiles who are anxious. Is is God hearing me? Is he answering me? Do they know what to do? God knows what you need before you can even utter the words. And he desires to give us what he knows to be good for us. Our Our prayers actually help us to understand what it is he desires. And we know with certainty that he will answer. It's been said, prayer doesn't change God. It changes one praying. We have to pray. You cannot have a Christian life unless you communicate with the one that provides the life. Notice how Jesus says, when you pray. It's a certainty. It's assumed that you will definitely pray. And we have to recognize our sinfulness in our prayer, and we must be in relationship Some people will pray and say, yeah, I prayed to God this bad thing was happening. If you're outside the kingdom, your prayer was not heard. That's all there is to it. It's talking about citizens of the kingdom. You're just babbling if you're not in a right relationship with God. You need to come into this relationship through the Jesus who died to take away the barriers and offers us a relationship with God. He makes us into the very children of God. Now, prayer was very important to the Jews. They had specific rules. Uh, you've heard of the Shema, I'm sure, the, the prayer from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was said every morning and every evening. Okay. There was another prayer called the Amidah, or the 18 benedictions. That was actually prescribed to be prayed three times a day. And perhaps that's what's happening with the one praying on the street corner. It happens to be that time, and you've got to stop and pray. Okay. So you do this prayer, and it was very specific. And what's interesting is that if we look back in Daniel, we see where Daniel would pray three times a day. That's probably where this comes from, Daniel uh, 6.10. But the Amidah was the core of every Jewish worship service. It was referred to as the prayer, and Amidah literally means standing because you would stand while you would pray. And it was divided into three central sections, and I won't go into those in depth, but it was praise, such as 
the almighty and powerful one who causes all events to happen, including the resurrection of the dead, and God is holy. Their requests to be returned to a state of closeness with God was one of them, to be redeemed, to be healed. And lastly was gratitude and thanks, that we thank God for keeping us alive and providing for us constantly being one of those. And the parallels between the Amidah and what we call the Lord's Prayer should be expected, and they are there, if you were to do a careful analysis. He didn't introduce some sort of magic words. And the Our Father, if you came from a tradition where you were required to say the Our Father in response to different issues and everything, do four Our Fathers and three Hail Marys and you know go forth and do good things. That's not what it's about. It's about being focused on God in your prayer praise, petition, and thanksgiving. The hypocrites would pray to be seen by others, but he says, Jesus says, pray in secret. There's no audience except God when you're doing that. It's your relationship only with him. And it's not our responsibility to create or maintain that relationship. Our responsibility is to be in that relationship. Okay, fasting. Last thing here, real quick. There were three fasts that were national and required, the Day of Atonement, New Year's, and the Ninth of Ab. Fasting is not something we typically practice. Uh, you, you may have more of a thing with fasting, talking about diet, but truly it's supposed to be an expression of remorse and penitence. The grief of contrition is a word that's used with that many times. And we tend to look today at feasting rather than fasting. Right? We look at feasting in the New Testament, but there's still a need to fast because it's a mourning over the sin around us, the rebellion against our king, and the certainty of a day of judgment to come. Uh, fasting is not a lot of fun. Uh, some people like doing it. There are different groups that will do it uh, once a week, twice a week. The Pharisees were twice a week. Okay. Uh, they, that's what it's talking about here in this fasting and everything. And there are reasons for fasting. Times of special crisis or need in Ezra. Times of repentance in Nehemiah. Times especially seeking God in prayer. Those are all different examples of fasting. But the reality is that fasting is supposed to be something that we do in an effort to grow closer to God. And it is practiced within the kingdom life. But it's not on the same plane as prayer. You can you cannot live the Christian life without prayer, but you can live it without fasting. Okay? Let's just make that simple. But fasting has benefits, physically and spiritually. You can get mental clarity sometimes, so if you have a critical decision, but focus on God, not on the decision, and maybe that fasting will be helpful. But above all, it will help us to learn what controls us. Is my appetite for this thing or this food in control of my thoughts or life? Fasting helps us grasp what we really need to be content. Am I content in Christ alone? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is about what God has done for us and those that believe in him and turn in repentance to him. Thus the verse on your bulletin, let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I would offer that righteousness is only found in a right relationship with God. I'll close with this from Martin Lloyd-Jones again. A certain truth is this. The Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous 
of good works. Let us pray. Father, thank you for a few moments with you. Um, Thank you for your words that we might desire relationship with you more than applause from those around us. We pray, Lord, that you would permit us to go from here uh, celebrating the relationship we have with you and the celebration uh, of the relationship we have with others, that we would want to have that be as you would have us be, fully in your spirit, poor in spirit. And we offer these things in your son's name. Amen.